functioning under the faulty and destructive worldview of secular humanism, Israel's elders reject the protection of God for the protection of an earthly king, a king modeled after the pagan nations of the world. But what the elders didn't bargain for is that by sowing the wind of carnal reason, they are about to reap the whirlwind. This is the 19th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading again coming from Samuel chapter 8. Samuel in chapter 8. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. As Samuel warns the elders of Israel, the ecclesiastical magistrates, as to what they are commanding him to do. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes and perverted judgment. And all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said unto him, Behold, Thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice, howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that thou shalt reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men's servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses to put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we will also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye, every man unto his city. The Apostle Paul writing to us by the same Spirit, Romans in chapter 13, the first four verses. 
by the inspiration of God, the Apostle says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whoso therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with its warnings and its admonitions. Now rejecting the true God in order to reconstruct a God in their own image so that they might be able to control that God that they have created. The elders of Israel are seeking to have that God at their beck and call, demanding of Samuel to give them a king after the manner of the pagan nations of the world. Indicting righteous Samuel for both his age, which should have been something that they acknowledged as good for his experience. They say that you are old. In other words, you cannot rule righteously. And of course, your sons are in rebellion. But these elders should have understood the demand for a king modeled after the pagan nations was not what God had intended for them. They should have known better, and that they did not know better, even as ecclesiastical magistrates. So, as we have already seen, this was not so much a request of Samuel. They did not ask Samuel's advice. They did not ask his counsel. They commanded of Samuel. They wanted a king. It was almost a threat, an intimidation tactic. Give us what we want. We have the numbers. You are just one man. You're old, and your sons are not walking in truth. So they didn't want any king. They didn't want a righteous king. They didn't want a defender of those that were good. They wanted a man modeled after paganism that would function like the other nations. They wanted a pagan king, a Canaanite king. And this is what happens when nations reject God, when national leaders or ecclesiastical leaders apostatize from the word of God. They begin to think carnally. And their demand, as they should have understood, was a demand which was a direct violation against the law of God. God had established Israel in the same way that he established the United States to be originally a nation situated as a city upon a hill, to be a universal example, a model of what a righteous nation should look like and how their law structure would be fleshed out in the real world bringing justice, bringing liberty. And this is what they were rejecting. God is king, God is judge, and God is lawgiver. The demand for a pagan king was a paradigm shift from what God had commanded Israel to do regarding government and law. And by seeking to establish a system of government based upon faulty human reason, whereby they effectively removed God from the halls of politics, justice, law, and order, the elders were in effect removing their need for the Lord's interventions. We don't need God anymore. Could you imagine? 
We don't need the judge of the earth. We don't need the righteousness of God. We don't need the righteous lawgiver himself. We don't need the creator of the universe and the only savior of man. We don't need him. What they wanted was their own king, their own way. And what they were doing was relying on a man, a mere human, to lead them and to save them. The shift proposed by these elders would be political, economic, military, cultural suicide, in the same way that socialism, Marxism, communism, dictatorship, and totalitarianism is also cultural suicide. So what they were vying for was a system which would bring destruction to their entire structural system of society. But this is this is where the elders were in their heart and their mind. This was a heart issue. It wasn't an academic issue. It was a heart issue. And at its root, it was an attempt to be as God. So as a result of their rebellion, God, of course, gives them up to their own lusts in the same way that he gave Israel up to their own lusts while they were in the wilderness, giving them quail until they finally vomited it out of their mouths. And the Lord said unto Samuel, verse 7, Hearken unto the voice of the people in that They say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. And the reason why they rejected me, because they don't want me to rule over them. God reminds Samuel that this rejection is nothing new to the people of God. In fact, it was a continuous observance of Israel. They continued to observe other gods and look to other gods. It was continual And it was an occurrence which continued day after day, generation after generation, from the time of the Egyptian bondage throughout the days of the judges. So one might then ask, why? What was the problem? What was that root? What was the core problem? Why did Israel continue to return to the bondage, to the to the quail, to the vomitous bondage of the past by embracing other gods, other philosophies, and other societal structures? But what was the lure? Why did they do that? It's not so much what they did. We understand what they did. But why? Why would you do that? Why would you consciously subject a nation to cultural suicide? And the general answer is simple. While they may have been liberated physically, they were still in bondage spiritually and psychologically. They continued to hold to a worldview which was not rooted in God's word, but rather it was rooted in their own understanding of God, of themselves, of life, and the world around them. And so they were not able to assess the situation accurately. They assessed the situation according to their fallible minds, the fallibility of their own minds. And this led them to making very poor and destructive decisions, destructive choices, which would invariably return upon them in misery. Destruction and misery was going to be their future. And herein is the lesson. If we do not have an accurate world and life view which is explicitly Christian, biblical in nature, we are destined to think wrongly, which will always cause us to speak and act wrongly. If we do not have a biblically sound world and life view, we will constantly make wrong decisions. So, what is a worldview? What does that even mean? 
See, the elders of Israel had this tweaked idea, this perverted idea of what the world should look like, of what the nation should look like, of what the church should look like. Not going to the word of God to figure it out, they used their own fallible reason. So what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is a network of beliefs which structure and direct every aspect of our lives. The simple fact is that everyone holds to some worldview. For the most part, worldviews held by people are a mishmash of a whole lot of things. Not explicitly Christian, not explicitly biblical. It's a combination of things. And what we need to do is refine our worldview to be explicitly Christian. And this is what happens when the elders of Israel, thinking they were Christian, they were Israel. We have the covenant, we have the miracles, we have the history, we have all of these wonderful things. We go to church, we take communion. Well, mother's a Christian, my father's a Christian, I'm a deacon, I'm an elder, or whatever it is, and we must have a biblical worldview. Not so. Everyone holds to some presupposition about God, about man, about life, about the cosmos and the world around them. Dr. Glenn Martin explains more fully. He says, a worldview is a full-orbed, rationally considered and articulated view of God, man and the cosmos, which answers both to the cosmological and the anthropological questions and applies those answers to all of life generally and to every area of life specifically in terms of the institutional structure and procedure flowing from those answers. It is a biblically sound world and life view. To put it very simply, a worldview is how a person thinks and then, as a man thinketh, so is he, and he then acts upon it in the real world as a result of his or her religious belief and interpretation of the real world. So as you think, you act. So if a man is thinking wrongly, he will act wrongly. And you could understand by the fruit of the man when he acts in a certain way or posits a philosophical presupposition or a, a, a legal presupposition or something that seems out of the ordinary, you could say it is not biblical, the man is not thinking logically, he's not thinking biblically, and he cannot then be a godly man, especially if he then refuses to take reproof and correction. A worldview can either be explicitly Christocentric or it will be a hodgepodge of many beliefs rolled into one. This synthesis of worldviews always leads to error. Only a biblical world and life view can lead to righteousness. That's why we study the scriptures. That's why we, we hear from the pulpit. Here's how we are to think. Here's how God thinks. We are to think God's thoughts after him. It's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. It's not anything that even a child cannot understand. In the case of our nation, only a return to an explicitly biblical world and life view can redeem us from the chaos of tyranny and its subsequent misery. And this is because only a biblical worldview can assess, address, and solve the problems of life, whether it's political, social, economic, environmental, racial, or any other aspect of the cultural order. Only the Bible can solve these things, whether it's immigration, whether it's the banking system, whatever it is, only scripture if we would just take the time to flesh out what God is saying about all of these issues, we would then be able to bring the nation back to its moorings. And that, that responsibility rests upon the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God.
Gary DeMar gives this explanation. He says, Ideas have consequences. What you think about God, yourself, and your world will determine how you will live in relation to God, yourself, and your world. Your world is made up of a set of presuppositions, first principles of belief that give meaning to the world in which you live. Many times, however, you are not aware what these first principles are or how you came to believe them, but they are there nonetheless. The idea of a worldview is not new. God interpreted the world for Adam and Eve. God's word was and is the starting point in the construction of a worldview. God's word, understand this, is the starting point of the worldview that you hold. It must be. Dr. Bernard Ram adds this. He says, all thinking is from presuppositions. What you presuppose, what you assume to be right or good. There can be no thinking without presuppositions. And therefore, all respectable thinking is from sound presuppositions. Any neutrality in science, philosophy, or religion is fictitious. In other words, neutrality is a myth. Everyone holds to something. He continues, the only respectable procedure is to admit that one thinks from presuppositions and to choose those presuppositions in a responsible manner. And what he means by that is a biblical manner. Now, the Israeli elders were exhibiting both to Samuel and to God that their worldview was certainly not biblical, but humanistic. It was secularized to the core, even pagan. And since a biblical worldview has God and his interpretation of all things as the starting point for truth, man is quite the opposite. Man, in his own mind, is opposite of God. He's anti-God by nature. He's carnal. Man's humanistic worldview has man at the center of all things, not God and his finite and fallible mind as the starting point of truth. That needs to be eradicated if we're going to see any kind of rejuvenation of either an individual, a family, the church, or even the nation. Israel's request for a pagan-like king was purely humanistic. They were trying to solve their problems without God as the solution. And all of these elders, all that they were concerned about was what they needed, what they wanted, and what they thought was best for the nation. And how we see this as it's being fleshed out is what they thought was best for the nation became the worst for the nation to the point where even Saul was killing the priests of God. And make no mistake about it, the Christian church, that is the one thing that stands between man being God and God being proclaimed as God. And what that means is humanistic man, if they are going to be God, because they cannot eradicate God, they must then eradicate the witness of God. They must target the church. The wonderful thing about history is that we've seen this pattern before, hopefully not falling into it again. The problem of these Israeli elders was that their starting point was themselves. They never considered that God knew best and they did not. And so they acted outside of God's revelation and took it upon themselves to manufacture a world and life view which was entirely alien to God and his word. And this made Israel idolatrous. Gary Dumar again explains, he says, any attempt 
to form a worldview independent of God's view of his world makes man an idol worshiper. Men therefore become new gods with independent knowledge seeking to rule in their own way. End quote. Israel's view of who should rule and by what standard a government should be structured was distorted as a result of their rejection of God and his law word. So faced with this problem, the elders, faced with this problem, the elders sought to use their own ideas on how to solve the situation presented to them and their problem was the Philistines. They wanted a military general to go out and fix everything and fight against their enemy. But what they failed to understand was that this situation was orchestrated by God to see what they would do. You see, this was a test. He was bringing the Philistines against them as a test to see whether or not they would trust their own mind or trust God. And yet God knew exactly, God knew exactly what they were going to do. It was not a test for for, for God to see what they would do, but rather it was a test to flesh out Israel's pagan mindset, to test Israel to show them that they still were in bondage to the humanistic, idolatrous worldview. It was a, an attempt to show Israel their sins so that they might repent and turn to the living God. And while they may not have been still physically in Egypt, they were certainly still philosophically, psychologically, and spiritually in Egypt. Now, there was a choice, of course. And this is what Samuel was giving them. He said, look, this is the kind of king that you're going to get. And he parades before the people all of these, all of these horrible things that was going to happen. So in a real sense, God is showing Israel great mercy, giving them a choice. Would they seek his face and pray or would they reject him and seek to solve the situation by their own fallibility and fallenness? And of course, they chose the latter. So, Okay, so what does a biblical worldview look like? How does it contrast with the humanistic worldview? Well, Demar gives these contrasting tenets. In a biblical worldview, God alone is sovereign. In a humanistic worldview, man is sovereign. In a biblical worldview, faith is in God. In a humanistic worldview, faith is in man. In a biblical worldview, law originates with God and absolutes are based upon his holy character. In a humanistic worldview, law originates with men. There are no absolutes. Law is what man says it is, no matter what it is. If tomorrow the United States Congress passed a law that you had to wear blue shirts on Tuesday and green shirts on Wednesday, and you were found with a green shirt on Tuesday, you would be in trouble. You would be a criminal. You would be breaking the law. In a biblical worldview, man's freedom comes from redemption in Christ and obedience to his law. In a humanistic worldview, on the other hand, man's goals of liberty and freedom come about by denying the need for God's law. And so man then establishes documents of freedom that are often changed, ignored, or discarded, such as the Declaration of Independence, which is no longer really looked at as anything of validity or any kind of bonding uh, purpose. And of course, the Constitution, which of course now is just a wax nose, and they use it when they want to use it, and they don't use it when they want to use it. In a biblical worldview, 
All power and authority are ordained of God. Rulers are ministers of God. If they refuse to be a minister of God for good, they are then declared illegitimate. In a humanistic worldview, government is of, by, and for the people. Now that sounds really great. But notice, the elders of Israel were speaking for the people. What we need to understand is elected officials are servants of the God who is in the heavens and not the majority of the people. So in a biblical worldview, all power and authority are ordained of God. Rulers are ministers, they are servants of God. In a humanistic worldview, government Of course, the elected officials are servants of the majority rather than God. So if the majority tomorrow says you have to wear blue shirts on Tuesday and green shirts on Thursday, that's the way it had to be. In a biblical worldview, man is created in the image of God and therefore accountable to him for all of his actions. In a humanistic worldview, man has evolved from impersonal matter over a long period of time and therefore is accountable to no one. In a biblical worldview, man's end is predestined by God. In the humanistic worldview, man, or the state, in other words, is the predestinating force over all things. In a biblical worldview, man bows in subjection to Christ. In a humanistic worldview, man bows to the gods of his own making. Usually it's the state. In a biblical worldview, man learns by thinking God's thoughts after him. Truth is revelational. On the other hand, in the humanistic worldview, man learns by reason alone, within his own fallible reason. If it is not reasonable to man, then obviously for him it's not true. He doesn't have to obey it. So you have the dichotomy between revelation and human reason. In a biblical worldview, man's problem is sin. Man must be recreated by God. In the humanistic worldview, the blame for society's ills is shifted to others and ultimately to God. Israel was borrowing their world and life view from the Canaanites and the nations around about them without so much as even knowing it consciously. And this is the the natural outcome of those that are not conscientious about establishing a biblical worldview. The fact is this. If you do not take the time to establish an iron-clared, explicitly biblical world and life view, you will adopt other views without even knowing it. That is what happens when people reject God, and that is what is happening in the world today, in the churches, within the clergy, and within the nation itself. This is why you have so many contradicting ideas about what is right and wrong. It should be crystal clear what is right and what is wrong. And yet we don't know. Is it a boy or is it a girl? And so as a result, we have confusion and chaos. This is especially evident when it comes to politics and how governments ought to function. And so as a result, you have professing Christian people supporting political parties and political agendas that the Bible clearly condemns. And this is all because of a perverted world and life view that is not explicitly Christ-centered and revelationally focused by the revelation of God. In other words, once a people or a nation divorce themselves from thinking biblically, they will support most anything that sounds like a good idea. Sounds like a great idea. Let's just give $2,000 a month to everyone because everyone needs money. It's a great idea. Let's just be so kind to all of the uh, illegal immigrants coming into the nation because we want to be loving. Sounds like a good idea. It's for the children. So instead of critically thinking what is being offered 
or what is being proposed. Those with a compromised worldview, much like having a compromised immune system, will be susceptible to just about anything. Got to wear masks. You shouldn't wear masks. Maybe you need two masks. No, we don't need masks. Oh, now we need goggles. The other day I walked into the store and the lady said, do you need a mask? I said, no, I have goggles. Don't need a mask. I thought we said no mask. What, is it mask today and not tomorrow? What, I, I don't remember. Is it Tuesday? If it's Tuesday, it must be masks. Israel was requesting a king that would destroy them. And they weren't even aware of it. Maybe that's the crisis. They didn't even know it. They thought he was the Savior. But Samuel, in his fidelity to God, tells them that if they chose this king, this king that would be patterned after the nations of the pagan world, he would eventually become tyrannical. He would become a tyrant. Now why would he say that? Why wouldn't he encourage them? Well, maybe it'll work out. Well, maybe if we get Saul, you know, maybe we could, maybe, maybe we could work with him. Why would Samuel give that insight? And what gave him that insight? Well, of course, God gave him the insight. But what did he know that the elders of Israel failed to embrace? Well, firstly, let's define our terms. What is tyranny? What does it mean to have a totalitarian dictator controlling a nation? What are the tokens of tyranny? Well, first, okay, first, what is tyranny? Well, tyranny is defined as when there is cruelty and oppression either by an individual, an institution, or a government. It is the suppression of liberty usually impressed upon a weak or defenseless individual or group. As we have already seen, how Israel was deprived of any defensive weaponry by the Philistines to keep them under their tyrannical rule. They took away all the weapons of warfare, all the weapons of defense. And this is exactly what the forefathers of American liberty wanted to ensure as an inalienable right, the right, the scriptural right, the biblical right to keep and bear arms. And that is exactly why oppressive governments want to disarm their people, making them slaves instead of citizens. Tyranny is always perpetuated by an individual or group of wicked anti-Christians, and it is always maintained, whether through the threat of force or through corrupt legislative action, which is maintained by the threat of force. Tyranny is the outworking of man's wicked desire to be godlike in an attempt to perpetuate a position of total domination over others. While Christians are to take dominion by the preaching of the gospel and by the grace of God impacting people, not so with humanism. They do so. They don't take dominion. They take domination and they do it by force. We find this type of wickedness in certain dictatorships, Marxist regimes, as well as in nations which are structured under communism and socialism, and especially in our modern dem democratic party of the progressives. So what does it mean to have a totalitarian dictatorship controlling a nation? Well, simply put, it means that freedoms are only granted to those that request a license from the state. Otherwise, there is a strict control of the lives and the decisions of the citizens of that regime. Of course, there are hard, cruel, tyrannical regimes, and then there's what's known as soft tyrannies. But make no mistake, soft tyrannies always end in hard, cruel, totalitarian dictatorships. It's the way that the harsh, tyrannical rulers get a population used to be controlled. 
We're going to tell you to do this. Now you do it and let's just see if they do it. Because if they do it, then we've got them. And those that rebel, extermination. That's been the history of the world. Soft tyranny is the clandestine path to total domination. And so not all tyrannical governments telegraph their intentions. They're usually hidden. They, they hide their real intention in language that sounds emotionally pleasant. Again, like uh, when they steal your money by unlawful taxation, they tell you, you know, it's for the children, it's for this thing, it's for reparations, and it's for safety, it's for economic stability, uh, for a number of things. In other words, they appeal to emotionalism. If you argue against this tyranny, then obviously you hate children. You hate the poor, you, you hate the sick, you hate the needy. You're labeled hateful. Let me give just one example that hits close to home. The radical left has proposed what they call the Green New Deal. And just for the sake of our esteemed congressman, I want you to know, Bob, that I wrote this sermon eight weeks ago. And you just happened. And, and, and you just and you just happened to be here, and you just happened to be here, and I just want to make sure that you know I did not edit this for your sake. Okay, so the radical left has proposed what they call the Green New Deal. Now, for those of us that are old enough to remember FDR's New Deal from our school books, shivers should run up and down our spine because of the idea of the Green New Deal. It was classic socialism. The Green New Deal takes socialism a step further into the realm of tyranny. David Horowitz explains this. The Green New Deal proposes to replace America's free market economy with a centrally planned top-down economic and social order. That's man trying to be God. Remember that. In which the federal government would be able to expropriate and direct what Karl Marx called the means of production and to do so by executive dictate. This was the system that had already been tried in such catastrophically failed states as Cuba, Cambodia, North Korea, China, Venezuela, the Soviet Union, and all of its satellites in Eastern Europe. Socialism is a system of shared misery based upon the faulty, flawed notion that an economy can be run by a centrally directed plan imposed upon a population without profit incentives to motivate individual productivity and innovation. The fact that socialist command economies invariably fail, causing incalculable human misery, seems lost on radical ideologues such as Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and the now dominant progressives, the Democratic Party. Also lost were lessons to be learned from the totalitarian results of centralizing power in the hands of the state and stripping ordinary citizens of their freedom. These ideologues, enthusiasts, are simply oblivious to the devastation such a gargantuan top-down overhaul of an entire society by a few individuals at the top might wreak on the lives of its 330 million inhabitants. This is what we face today because of the irrelevancy of the Church of Jesus Christ in the marketplace. Hiding within their four-wall ghetto church, they should be running candidates. They should be supporting candidates. Instead of building gymnasiums, swimming pools, and tennis courts, they should be putting their money into the culture. 
Today, if you argue against what is called social justice, you're labeled a hateful person, even a racist. Even though the redistribution of wealth is theft, it really doesn't matter. Saul was, was calm and, 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 and actually, even in a point, unassuming when he only wanted a tenth of the sheep and of the oxen. In a soft tyranny, people are manipulated through the politics of guilt and pity. The quest for egalitarianism, whereby everyone must be equal, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, is unbiblical. No one is equal to another. We're equal under the law. We're equal in God's sight as human beings. But we're all different. Thank God for it. But even that, being equal under the law, is being expunged. Justice is now only for a select group. If you're not in that group, you're just tough out of luck. The modern idea of egalitarianism, that if people are not equal, then the government must step in to ensure that everyone is equal. This is a revisitation of what is known as the Jacobin theory. The Jacobins were members of the radical left during the French Revolution, which promoted the reign of terror and other extreme measures of violence in order to bring about equal rights, as they called it. This is the policy of the radical left in America today, and it is the idea behind social justice, which is actually an oxymoron, since it is not justice at all, and it fails to address the real causes of society's ills. So is justice, as the social justice warriors claim it to be biblical? And the answer is no. Robert Louis Dabney once said this, My wish is to make all Christians face this plain question. Will you surrender the inspiration of the scriptures to the assaults of a social science so-called? If not, what? And he was referring to social justice. Abraham Kuyper faced the very same question when he said, Modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference, cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman and putting every distinction on a common level, kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. And he wrote that years and years and years and years ago. And so the real meaning of tyranny is often shrouded with misleading language in order to control the people into submission. What was Israel's, then, therefore, motivation in seeking to undermine God's order? Well, as we have seen, they first wanted to be God. They wanted to act in a God-like way, rejecting God and His laws. But they also wanted to control the outcome of their quest. Man wants to control providence. And these Israeli elders thought that if they could control God or shifted their allegiance to the pagan gods of the Canaanites, whom they believed the Canaanites were able to control, then then they could control the outcome of their warfare against the Philistines. They could control life. And this is what we find today. Men trying to micromanage the life of everyone in order to make everything perfect. A utopia which will devolve into dystopia. And what these Israeli elders were actually doing was destroying the nation. But they were thinking that they were saving the nation. And that's the, the crazy part. They really believed they were saving the nation. But because their worldview was so perverted and their minds were so filled with sinful imaginations, they were actually destroying the nation because they could not determine, they could not distinguish between good and evil. They were incapable. 
And that is exactly what the radical left is doing today. They are seeking to destroy America in order to save America by creating a nation in their own image, apart from God and apart from his laws. And finally, what are the tokens of tyranny or the proofs of tyranny? Well, we find them listed in chapter 8, of which God tells Samuel to parade before the elders in all of Israel so that they might understand what they are in for. So before God gives Samuel the go-ahead to give them a king, he first tells him to parade before them what manner of king they actually are going to get. We will consider the catalog of tyranny in more detail when we continue in the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.